Praise the God and say amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so thankful that you give us a sermon in sight, that we can see that you are changing lives, Lord, and that you're changing lives early, lives that are dedicated to you, Lord, in their youth. What a blessing it is, Lord, to see that. How much hope it gives us that you are sovereign, that you are bringing people, and that you are not done. Lord, it is in that hope that we came and gathered today. Lord, we came to see you, to know you, Lord, to feel you and experience you in a fresh way, to take, Lord, what is eternal in you and to take what is perfect and unchanging in your word that is also dynamic and it touches us, conforms us, lifts us up. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we ask that you speak to us today. In your name we do pray. Amen. Jerry, if I could ask you a favor, could we do uh, sing to the king? as well afterwards. I appreciate it. That song you'll see should, if we make it anywhere close to our intentions, it should tie in. If I scrap it at the end, it means we went way sideways. How many of you, either today or sometime this week, woke up with an alarm? And that alarm could be your parents. If the parents is, you know, wake you up, that counts. All right, show hands. How many wake up for alarm at least sometime? All right, the majority of us, right? At certain times, we set an alarm. We set the alarm because it is critical. It is important. I need to get up. And those of us that struggle a little more, it's so important that we give plenty of time for the snooze, right? Yeah, we'll give, we, I might hit this three times because at the third time, I have got to get up. There is a moment, there is a time where we have to get up. And knowing the night before, we said, I need to set this. It is critical that we understand what hour it is. You know, it would be nice, right, if we woke up in the morning sometimes, lay back and go, doesn't really matter what time it is. That's okay. It's fine. What time is it? Apostle Paul basically is setting the alarm clock for the church today. He is setting an alarm, and he is sounding the alarm clock. You know, uh, uh, he's out here almost like a parent, uh, I know what happens in our home, you know, if this happens in yours, you know, there is that kind of yell, you know, there's times we're yelling, let's admit it, right, there's yelling in the home. One of the yellings in the home is, get up, you're going to miss the bus, right, has that, is that exactly those exact words, right, that, get up, it's the verbal alarm clock, get up, you're going to miss the bus. Sometimes I think we just need to have one, everyone needs to have one floor or ranch so we could at least yell sideways versus up. And then the biggest idle threat ever by parents. If you don't get up and you miss the bus, I am not going to drive you to school. Meanwhile, we got the you know, keys in our hand. We know we're going to drive them to school. They're not going to miss a day. I am not driving you to school. Paul, Paul is sounding the alarm clock here. He is yelling at us, if you will. In the spirit, we will see that he is sounding the alarm. But his, there is no threat because he can't do it for us. He can't put us in the bus if we miss it. If we miss the bus, if you will, he can't say, fine, I will drive you. You can go on my bus because I am going to make it. This is no idle threat when he's encouraging us. You know, the kids in our back of my mind say, yeah, you're going to drive me anyways, you know, just in case I miss it. I'm not going to try to miss it, but if I do. Today's time is all about what time it is, and what is coming soon.
So if you need to kind of wrap your head around what we're going to discuss, we're discussing what time it is and what is coming soon. And what's going to wrap all of that is that Jesus needs to be Lord of all and needs to be above all. So this is a three-part series, Romans chapter 13. Feel free to turn with me and your Bibles, page 948 if you're looking. Short three-part series in Romans 13. We picked it because there's got a context for it. It's one of the chapters in a Bible that goes into the government and how you should relate to your government. We got election season. We cannot, you know, we've seen more PACs and super PACs and more contributions and more ads. You know, I know more about political terminology than I ever thought I would need to, although I know nothing about what anybody actually believes. I just know snippets. Um, But there is an election. There is government, local, state, city, council, all of it. How do we relate to it? What do we need to do? Romans 13 really is three parts. We've got a three-part series. The first two that we've done the last two weeks, Peter and Brad, the how. How, in the first part, do we relate to our government? Number two, last week, how do we relate to others in love? But today, Paul shifts it. And the third part is why. Why is this important? Why should we live a holy life, interact properly in a righteous, holy way with our government? Why should we relate to others in love? And you'll see that he's going to talk about why should we live holy, why should we live purposefully, but really, it's going to be why should we do this urgently? This is not this, there's plenty of time. You know, if you will, the big picture, right? The bus is coming now. Come down the steps, you know. Bus is coming. If you will, I wrote down what I think is our key premise. So those of you that like to take notes. We can only live out the how when we are properly related to the why. And you'll see that the why is the day of Christ's return. Okay? The day of Christ's return. This whole thing, if you ever heard the word eschatology or the study of eschatological items, it is the study of last things. The study of last things. Some people would put it in the study of end times. Maybe kind of a common vernacular. What Paul is doing here is creating an entire foundation in this little short couple verses. An entire foundation, a basis for why in the study of last things. He's going to call out eschatological items saying to us, Because of Christ's return, we need to live holy, purposefully, urgently. Okay? Well, let's read it. Let's just see how this kicks off. We can only live out the how when we are properly related to the why. The why is Christ's second return. Turn with me to Romans 13, starting in verse 11. Besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on 
the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You know, Paul is writing this for us. There was a great American preacher, teacher, many would argue one of the greatest preachers, teachers of all time in the 1700s. His name was Jonathan Edwards. I want to read you that he had had this. When he was studying scripture, when he was reading through this, he, he wrote a lot on Romans, by the way. When he, I believe that this captured his heart. So I want to just give you a quote that he lived by and just a couple things from Jonathan Edwards going back literally 300 years. It becomes us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and our true happiness? To live with heaven in mind, our proper end and our own true happiness. It was okay. He was thinking of his own true happiness, thinking of what's to come. He understood what Paul's talking about here, right? The study of end times, the last things, the things that are going to come. He made for himself, some of you may have heard this, his resolutions. If you've never read Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, go home, do a Google search, print them off. There's quite a few. He wrote them over a period of time, but a short period of time. I just want to read you three that kind of relate to this. Number one, he always started with resolved. He was going to resolve. This was in his youth he wrote these. Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself, Jonathan Edwards, as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, vehemence, yea, even violence that I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Number two, resolved to live with all my might while I do actually live. And then he had this wonderful one that helped him catch it when he failed. Resolved, if I ever shall fall or grow dull or not accomplish these things so as to neglect to keep any part of these resolutions, I resolve to repent of all I can remember when I come to myself again. So that's the beauty of he understood that it's going to be difficult. But he's talking about here living to create happiness, to create joy in which life? In this life? No, in the life that will be and the life that will come. He had a vision that heaven was around the corner. He lived with that. He understood the time that he was living in, the last times. Now we need to unpack what did he really understand. I think what he understood is what we will, by God's grace, endeavor to go over right now. So if we're looking at the verses, we're going to unpack them, expound on them, if you will. Let's take a look at what is in verse 11 and 12 to kick us off. Besides this, you know the time, the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So we're going to break this part now into three areas. We're going to go timeline and salvation. We are going to also talk about what are we dressed for the occasion, and then we're going to apply this in the third section. Timeline and salvation. If you're writing things down, if I told you to break down the timeline of life, and I said, you know what, we're in math, right? Write a timeline. And I'd say, put an arrow back. Let's go this way. We got what? Eternity past, right? So what's going to be kind of our first big break point? Creation. Let's put creation. We put A. If you're writing it down, A. Said, all right, let's go forward. From creation, we have maybe what's next? 
Christ's first coming. Right? Christ's first coming, the advent. Here Christ comes. We can put that as B. Most of us would put a nice big chunk there, right? There's creation and then there's Christ's advent, thousands of years, if you will. What comes next? C, Christ's second coming, right? That's the last, Christ's second coming. And then we could put an arrow to the right, eternity future. And if I told all of us to write this, I think we would have like nice big gaps. We'd have this little section in a big A, and then we have a nice section of thousands of years and a big B. We'd have a nice, you know, big, you know, gap in C. And then we'd have, you know, a little gap forward with an arrow, eternity future. And that would be our visual. And the visual would tell anything that the psychologist would need to know because it would tell us that how we live. That eternity past would only be a slightly bigger than our gaps now between B and C. But the reality should be that if we really want to write this even remotely correctly to give us a vision for how to live, we'd have eternity past. We have A right, right next to it. Like with a microscopic dot would be B. Right, right next to it, almost on top of each other would be C. And then we'd have eternity future. And what in that visual, if we wrote it that way on our paper, if we put that up on our refrigerator, it would remind us that from Christ's first coming to his second coming is like that. And we are living in the that. And if we're living into that, what are we looking all around here for? It is now. In the big scheme of things, it is now. That is what Jonathan Edwards was starting to understand, that the timeline, you understand the, the time that you are living in. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believe. This was written thousands of years ago. It was written to the early church. If it is still practical for us, how would this be written and thousands of years still go by? Well, there's a couple obvious ones. Every single day we read this, salvation is nearer to us because God's given us time and space, at least for us. What he lives in is a whole other matter. It's a whole other scientific matter. But for us, he's given us time and space. So if we read this on a Tuesday and we read it on a Wednesday, it is for sure that our salvation is nearer now than yesterday. Monday, if we are by God's grace here tomorrow, it will be nearer than today because we are on a timeline the sand is going through. There is a time where he will return in time and space, and it is going. It is something for us to pay attention to. We need to understand that the timelines A, B, and C are right next to us. So why does he bring in salvation? Because right away he's going into salvation. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. This is where I encourage the church when we study at home, right? we got to study because we read over that and go, yeah, that makes sense. Well, wait a minute. It doesn't really make sense. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. I thought I was saved. When I accepted Christ, I was saved. I was saved then. So how is salvation nearer to me now than when I was first saved? This is confusing. Well, what he is saying is the concept in Scripture, salvation is the already now and the not yet. The already now and the not yet. The already now is justification. We are justified by God through faith in his grace. When we accept him, our sin is wiped away. We are legally and positionally saved by him. He writes our name in the Lamb's Book of Life. He sits down with us and says, you are my children, you are my heirs, and you go with me forever. We have salvation initially. And God, as a part of his plan of salvation, creates sanctification. In this life, we are growing, we are maturing, we are coming closer to him. And in that part, it has happened, it is happening. And then there's this line. 
in this life, that is all we will ever get. Justification and sanctification. Because the end of salvation is glorification. When we put off this body, when we put off our inner nature, when we put off sin, and we are put in a renewed earth as renewed people in a resurrected life with Satan set aside, glorified forever with him. That is the ultimate, that is the end of our salvation. And the glorification part is also what he's referring here. That part is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And why does he talk about that? Because not everything's written. Part of it is the meditation part where we sit there. Well, why write that? He's writing that for a sense of casting a vision. If it's closer to when we first believe, what's closer? Christ's second coming is closer. It might have only been a couple decades, a handful of decades since his ascension. You know, not even a full century. But it's closer. And he's talking to the early church to say, his second advent is closer. Keep it in mind. When you're talking about, he just got done talking about the government, how to relate to the government, how to relate to each other in love, and he's using it as a premise. The basis for all this how was the why, because the advent, the second advent, is closer than when we initially believed. Remember that? I was there. It was Saturday night. You accepted Christ. You saw the truth. The Spirit opened your eyes. You repented and were born again. Amen. I was there. But now we're even closer. You've had a spiritual birthday, if you will, and it's even closer. In God's sovereign and cosmic plan, we have the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ into heaven, and the descending of the Holy Spirit to fill the lives of all believers and to go into the entire world. All that has happened. There's only one thing left on God's agenda is to bring Christ back. All that is left on his calendar is to bring Christ back. And so Paul is trying to stir up the church to a knowledge of it. We need to live that we are in the age of only thing left is for Christ to return. And even Christ himself said that they don't know the hour. They don't know the time. So is Paul writing like he knew the time, like it was tomorrow? No, no. He was writing in a sense of the only thing left on the calendar is Christ's return. And if we really want to get into a nice, you know, like a 10-week Bible study on this, and we wanted to get into some of the revelations and some of the stuff in Daniel and some of the stuff in Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians, we could take a look at, okay, how about the entire world being evangelized? There's some issues of, you know, timing in here, like the gospel will go out. Gospels went out pretty, pretty far. How about the restoration of Israel? Okay. You can get in all kinds of nuances here. What about apostasy, that they will be coming a final apostasy? Do we look around and see a lukewarmness and a, and a coldness to who Christ is? If you even want to add in what I would call these subpoints, subpoints, the only thing left on God's calendar, big picture, is Christ's return. And he wants us to live this way. He wants us to wake up and go, why should I do this today? Why now? Because of Christ's imminent return. It is not writing in a mistake like, oh, wow, Paul knew that, man, 2,000 years, he's telling us all believers, all times, know that we live in a moment that Christ could return at any time. 
And what we do in this life is the only thing that will matter. So now he kicks us forward in verse 12. He says this. Now we're going to go with this idea. Are we dressed for the occasion? If we're living in this life, if this is our calling, that we are living in the end, the last thing on the calendar, are we dressed for it? Verse 12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So here he's talking about armor, putting something on physically on our bodies. The same idea he's holding to, casting off the works of darkness, maybe the clothes of darkness. So there's two, two ways we can look at this. And I can tell you right now, I'm not 100% sure which one. I know they both relate, so I'm going to give them to you both. In the night... He's what, what Paul's drawing out here. When we live in the night, there's night clothes. There's two kinds of night clothes that, I, as far as I can tell, there's pajamas, right? Pajamas, you know, all kinds of pajamas. Yeah, for some of us, they're just our Tuesday shorts, you know, and others, there's something else. They're nice silk pajamas and all that. We won't go into that, but there's pajamas, which are probably the ones that just want to sleep. Just leave me alone. I'm tired. I go to bed at 9:30. You know, it's all good. I got my pajamas on. I brush my teeth. I'm sleeping. For others, when night comes. They're night owls. It's time to put on the party clothes, the party dress. We're going out. Right? There's the 9.30 pajamas, go to sleep people Friday nights. And then there's the, we're going out. If you happen to live in New York City, there's more of the going out. If you live sometimes somewhere else, it's a little bit the other. But there's two kinds. And I'm not sure which one exactly it's referring to, but I do believe that it is encompassing both. The pajamas idea is, I've got plenty of time. I'm resting. I'm sleeping. You know, we'll see if the alarm might go off, it might not. It's just my time to rest. And there's others that are like, I am going out and I am going to party. Because that's the best thing to do. Because it's been a rough week, it's been a rough time. Yeah, I'm a believer, all that. But you know, the moment, the way that I live, I need some joy, I need some happiness, I need to let off some steam, and I'm going to party. And if I go too far this way or this way or that way and hang out with them, you know what? God forgives. God's gracious. He's, he's a full of grace. I need a party. And I've got some, oh man, I can't wait to wear this new outfit. I got this whole thing. It's all, it's all rocking. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about in the night, there's a different way to be. But the night is far spent. And when we come to the morning and the alarm goes off, I've got to go to work. And it's the idea, either take off the pajamas or take off the party clothes because either I've got to put on my construction gear because I've got to put up a deck today or I've got to go meet a client and I've got to put on my suit or I've got surgery so I've got to put on these scrubs. Whatever it is, and if you want to go back to some of the old days, I like the Middle Ages a bit too, right? You got here, if, if you were a knight, you get up in the morning, it's like, I bet I've got to put on my armor. I've got, because it's going to be a battle. We might have caught a couple hours of sleep, but there is a battle and as soon as first light comes, it is put on the armor. Paul is drawing attention to it. He's, he's talking to him. He goes, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. I'll give you the reasons why. Put your finger in Ephesians chapter 6 because we're going to go there right after. It's probably the wrong order, but Galatians comes first and Ephesians right after, so I'm just going to do it that way. Yeah, probably should have done it the other way. Galatians chapter 5. 
you'll recognize it. You might not have known it's Galatians 5.22, but you'll recognize it. What does Paul want us to put on? If we're going to take off you know, the clothes of the night and put on the clothes of the day, if you will, there's again two ways that I see this. One is putting on the attributes of Christ. The attributes of Christ. And how do we do that? Through the work of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 22. If you haven't memorized this yet in your life, it's, it's, a, it's a healthy thing to do. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This one's going to come up in a bit, so you know, maybe underline it if you want. Self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Put on the attributes of Christ, love, joy, gentleness, peace, self-control. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucifixion is an ugly thing, right? It's one of the worst ways. It is a violent killing of the flesh. The attributes of Christ is one thing we put on. But he had talked about the armor as well. And I think it's important for us to kick ahead. Ephesians chapter 6. You know what? I'm, I was going to start in verse 11, but I'll start in verse 10. We've got a whole subheading there. The whole armor of God. I'm going to read through verse 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, because of this battle, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The attributes of Christ, but the one I think he's hitting at more specifically here, because he mentioned the armor, and he knew which of he wrote. We need it for protection. Our salvation does not make Satan go, oh, well, I've lost one. Oh, well. Let me just go keep the ones I have. My whole goal here is, is just keeping the remaining ones I have, and I won't even think about those others that have abdicated, you know, that have cut the chain and are now loving and worshiping with Christ. He's like, you know what? Now you made me mad. And my entire goal is destroy your witness, to destroy your joy and to destroy your peace. And I've got from this time to the time you die, until the time of glory, Satan knows what time it is. 
if the believers, Paul's trying to write us up because he says our enemy, the adversary, is up there. What, what is he saying? That you may be able to stand, verse 11, to put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Put this on because without this, what's the implication? You won't be able to stand. You will not make it. You do not understand the fire that you are going to come under. You have woken up a giant and he's angry when somebody accepts the love and the grace of Christ, his adversary. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The idea of a little bit of mysticism, an idea of thinking through, closing our eyes and seeing that if the demons exist and Satan exists and they can come at us with schemes and ideas and everything that takes us in our areas of weakness are coming against us, what are we going to need? Do we want to stand there naked, if you will, or do we want to stand with the protection that God has to put on his armor? Friends, I know my life. Uh, I know that sometimes when the alarm goes off, I get up and go, okay, what do I need today? Let me just grab this and grab this. And I go out basically naked, if you will, into the world, about eight seconds of preparation. What Paul is telling us here, stop, pause. It is going to be violent tomorrow. There is a battle. Whether you choose to admit it or not, you are in a mighty battle. And if you go off tomorrow without your helmet, without the shield of faith, without the sword of the Spirit, we are inviting disaster into our lives. This is the time that we live in. So what should we do? Are we dressed for the occasion? Are we dressed for the occasion? Are we have the attributes of Christ When we have the protection, the attributes flow, by the way. It is when we are being beaten, when we're getting hit, when we're going down, that's when you see things that are not loving, when we don't have self-control, when we're being pulled away by our own vices, by our own lusts, by our own desires. You see a Christian who claims to be a Christian walking over here, and people would say, I don't see it. The attributes I see are not those of Christ. Love and joy and peace and that just the self-control. It's a life that's, that's, that's a bit of a mess. But when we have his protection, you know, why aren't you nervous right now? Why aren't you sweating? Well, I'm, I'm good, man. They can take, take a swipe, man. I got this great armor on. I've got Christ covering. And then the attributes can come out. We need to apply some of these things a little more specifically. Paul helps us do that. Turn back with me to Romans 13, if you will. Turn left back in your Bibles. Verse 13 and 14. He hits it now quickly in his application. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on, as we just discussed, the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. If you saw what Paul did there in verse 13... He gave us kind of three little categories with like two specifics underneath each one. And to me, when I read this again, it kind of hit me. I'm like, one minute we're talking about just relating to our government. Then we're talking about the next section, you know, the how, relating to each other. And now in three, he's talking about the armor and the night and giving us a vision of the future. And then he hits 
I'm speaking to the church here. I thought, am I in Corinthians again here? What's going on here? Because now he goes, uh, let us walk properly as in daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. The way I kind of characterize these three is what do we do with these things? Self-control and intemperance, number one. Sexual sins, number two. And number three, social sins. And he hits the first one, right, the self-control. He puts it as orgies and drunkenness. Those are two pretty big things. And we sometimes think, well, that's out there. He's talking to the church. That there are times when our self-control, and I don't believe this is the only two. I think he's given us a vision of some of the two that were major, that were predominant. We all know this. this, The human body wants to go towards these things, and it wants to go there. And therefore, we struggle with it. You look out in this world, that's what we struggle with. Self-control. But it's self-control in other areas. It's self-control for success. Self-control in our eating. He is saying that the believers, if we struggle with self-control, not being able to withstand the lusts and the passions of the flesh, we're inviting disaster and we are living in the night. We're not ready for battle. We are not in the daytime. Then he moves forward. He goes very, very specifically. Now now it's almost hitting it again as he hit in the sexual sins. Sexual immorality and sensuality. God knows we have needs of all these things. God has provided ways to explore and enjoy all things that are sexual in his way and in his time. But when they are perverted, that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to take us out of the things that God designed and take us sideways. And we want to live in the night. Might even be in the middle of the afternoon, but we're living in the night. And then he puts us even forward. And sometimes we think there's these greater sins and lower sins. And there's some truth to that, right? We can hit that in, in another time. But here he puts them all together and he goes, and not in quarreling and jealousy. These social sins of relating to each other and how we relate to others and quarreling and fighting and jealousy. These are major issues. And they relate to our ability to have self-control over our lives and Satan having victory over us. He doesn't want us to live this way. This is not how we should live without self-control, without the ability to control the sexual sins and the social sins. And they are all major. Paul is drawing them out for us. So what do we do? Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify these desires. Put on Christ. If you are sitting here today and you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, good luck fighting these things. And I use luck because that literally, and you won't win, but that's the only phrase that even makes any sense towards that because it would be a silly notion. The beginning of victory comes in repenting of our sins, accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord, and having his spirit to fight for us and through us. The second part is sanctification. When we put on Christ, we come to him as a child. We can accept his grace. We don't know all the things that's happening. But when we start to study Romans and we start to study Galatians and start to study Ephesians and God puts it in our heart with the spirit, we say, I am learning. I am learning about the night and I'm learning about pajamas and I'm learning about party clothes and I'm learning about the daytime and I'm learning that Christ is coming and the second advent is here 
and I need to live with a purpose, and I need to live urgently. That is sanctification, where we are growing and maturing in the Spirit. We're having victory in our lives. Can the church say amen? Amen. We need a little more victory. Can the church say amen? And we're going to be sanctified. By God's grace, we're going to be. And we need to live with the idea of he's coming. My salvation is in the now, but it's, a, it's also in the not yet. And those who live in the belief and the vision of heaven is there and heaven is coming and it is going to be all good, all great, all the time. And it is only for a moment that we suffer. It is only for a moment that I have to say no. I do, here's some good news, people. I do not have to say no to Satan forever. At the worst case of it, I have to say no to the day I die in this life. Or, perhaps sooner, Christ's return. I just have to say no for a bit. No thank you. That's not what I'm about. I got my armor on. I'm going this way. I'm in a battle. What about tomorrow? I just got to get through tomorrow. Because after a bit, never again will he bother us. Never again. We are not fighting this infinite battle. that We're like, dude, I am gonna, I'm telling you, if I got to do this forever, I'm, I'm going to wear out. God knows that. He's fighting it for us, but he's got a vision for us. We have to have a vision of our end. I want to give you two little applications, two little stories. You know, one is a past one, and one is one that I just want to make timely for what I think is coming. It is so easy for us to get caught up in the moment and have our vision is blurred. If our vision is blurred, we don't execute properly. Right, there's Florence Chadwick, 1952, young lady, swam the English Channel both ways, just to prove the current wasn't going to bother her, right? Whatever way it's going, swam the English Channel both ways. So she's going to do another big swim. She's going to swim from Catalina Island to the coast of mainland California. Another big swim. If you've ever taken that boat, and I know Annie's done it, it's a, you know, it's, it's a long way, big current. She's going to do it. She's got safety boats. She's got her mom in the boat. She's going to do this. And obviously, she's a great swimmer. This shouldn't really be a problem for her. Although it's very difficult, she should be able to do it. She's swimming along, but here's a problem. It's an extremely foggy day. All she could barely see was just the boat here in front of her, just right to her side, and she was struggling. She was making it, and her mom was constantly being there to say, come on, Florence, you can make it just a little further, just a little further. It's not that far. You're most of the way there. Just keep going. And really, it was out of character. She got to a level, and she said, I quit. And they had, to pull, they had to drag her out of the water, pull her into the boat. And when Florence saw how far she was, she was literally half a mile from shore. Half a mile from shore. So they asked her afterwards, you were half a mile from shore. Your mom was like, you're almost there. Yeah, I'm telling you, literally, I've got the mileage. We're almost there. They go, why couldn't you finish? She said, you know, I'm thinking about that. I think if I could have just have seen the shore, if I could have just had a vision of the shore, I am sure I could have made it. The application for us, friends, is if we are not living with heaven in our sight, if we don't wake up with, I can see the promised land, it is coming. If we're like the Israelites roaming through the desert going, I don't know where Canaan is, man, it's just, all I see is desert. It's like, I'm done. Doing another week of this, I'm, I had it with the manna. You know, I am done. You know, God's provision, I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I am tired. Half a mile from shore, there's believers that would quit. 
because they can't see the promised land. Paul is saying, I'm trying to show it to you. He is coming, and he's bringing all of heaven with him. And you won't have to swim anymore. I'm, we're done. Just swim a little longer with my strength. And we'd say, oh, you know, okay, it's a nice story, Pastor. Appreciate it. You know, I can see the application. But I want to draw something out. Give me some grace for this one. Because what I'm trying to draw out is not some big political comment, but the idea of how the most major things, big stories, can be little snippets for us. There's a story right now that's going on in the news quite a bit. It's going to be right with the sports. You know, did the Browns win or lose? How did the Indians do? What's tomorrow's weather? And who, what happened in the local uh, sections? It's going to be this other thing. It's going to be right there. By the, by the by, Netanyahu is talking again, and he's trying to call everyone to pay attention because Iran is within six months of having a nuclear bomb. And it just goes on to the weather and all this. The world can take something like that and say, all right, here's thousands of years of animosity that is, according to the people in a know, within months, we've been talking years before and decades, within months of having a nuclear bomb that could wipe off their enemy off the face of the earth. And people are doing what many of us do. I heard that. What's the weather tomorrow? And you've got Netanyahu going, is anybody paying attention? I'm not talking about decades. I'm not talking about confluence. I'm talking about by 2013, maybe February, we are all potentially going to be dealing with a world we don't understand. All of us. They're like, I know, but I got homework to do tomorrow. And I got to cut the grass. Our nature is to go, eh. And Paul is saying to us, Christ is coming. He could come before Iran has a nuclear bomb. He could come before anything. He could come before Christmas. He is coming, though. And the only thing we have is every day to put on the armor of Christ, to fight with him in the day with a knowledge of that is our vision, that is our hope, and that is what we fight for. That is why we need to sing to the king, you know, because it's in this time. Can we pray together? Lord God, I ask you, Lord, to help us with the last part of that verse that Paul said to the church, make no provision for the flesh. Lord, this is our conclusion. Lord, this is our prayer to you. We make so many provisions for our flesh. We make provisions every day. We make excuses for our sin for our bad conduct. We put it on others. We say it's normal. Who can, you know, we have no greater vision, Lord. I'm asking you, Lord, now, starting with me first and everyone else here, give us a vision of a sanctified life, a victorious life, a life that glorifies you and honors you, that lives as if tomorrow may be it, where you come back, how would we live today? What is our priority? What is our urgency? Is it to accomplish all the things of this life that supposedly make me happy or to accomplish the things that would truly make me happy and give me a home in eternity? Lord, I know I'm praying a lot because of our fallen nature and we we've so often fail. But Lord, you are greater than our failures. You came to save us. You came to sanctify us. And Lord, you are here to bring us home to glory. I ask you, Lord, to raise us up to be a people that honors you and glorifies you so that others may see it and come to you 
We do this, Lord, for your honor, for your sake, and only in and through you. Amen.